electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. I'm Tyler Matheson on day 173 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, cases are spiking in several states, forcing businesses to close their doors once again. Some of these states truly are in epidemics right now. Cases spike. Several states hitting new infection records today. Plus, businesses forced to shut down a second time. We'll hear from one owner tonight. New fears as eviction moratoriums start coming to an end. Also tonight, how can I maximize my profit in this investment opportunity? A one-of-a-kind internship program. This CNBC special report, Crisis in America, begins right now. Here's Tyler Matheson. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. It is good for, to have you here with us tonight uh, on this uh, Friday evening in the summer. New coronavirus cases are on the rise tonight across the country. California reporting a new one-day high, more than 4,300 cases today, and the seven-day average there is rising more than 11 percent. Dr. Andrew LaFree is emergency medical director at El Centro Regional Medical Center, just east of San, Fran- San Diego, excuse me, where the ICOU is filled to capacity. Doctor, uh, welcome. Good to have you with us tonight. With an ICU that is filled to capacity and uh, ERs that are probably filled as well. What do you do with patients who need that acute care? Hi, Tyler. So what we've been doing, you know, we're working to, first off, increase the capacity of our ICU. Um, We've already doubled the capacity, and as we speak, we're working on adding another ICU tent in front of the hospital. But then, obviously, you also have to send out a bunch of the patients um, you know, to other hospitals, other counties, so they can get the care that they need. How far away are you sending some of these patients? So we've been sending patients all the way from San Diego County up to L.A., uh, up to, like, Sacramento and San Francisco occasionally. What have you learned uh, as you, you and you say that you've had a, a really a steady stream of patients into the ICU, into the ER, many of them quite sick, uh, but that has been uh, intensifying in recent days, as we have learned. What have you learned about caring for these acutely ill patients? Are you making progress in the therapeutic side? I think we are. Um, You know, the information obviously has changed very, very rapidly. Um, But we're we're doing a number of things, like we're innovating people later. We're trying to hold off on that as much as possible. We have a whole uh, protocol for doing awake proning on the patients and high-flow nasal cannula to try and prevent them from deteriorating to the point where they need to get innovated. 
how uh, how how many deaths are you seeing now? Is the death rate declining because you've been able to to learn how to treat better, or is it rising? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, the death rate has gone up. I, I don't know that it's because of the treatment, but it's just because of the, the volume of patients that we've been seeing. Um, I, I think that as we've kind of gotten used to treating it over March, April, May, we've gotten much better at handling it. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing many more patients. Um, so just the, the numbers dictate that more people are going to get seriously ill from it. Dr. LaFree, thank you very much for your time tonight and uh, continue the good work. We appreciate what you and your fellow physicians, nurses, and frontline folks are doing. Thank you so much. Florida also seeing an up, you got it. Florida also seeing an uptick in uptick in cases. So many, in fact, that some businesses that had reopened have had to close back down again after reopening just a short time ago. Rick Colmer is the owner of Kiwi's Pub and Grill in Central Florida. He reopened his restaurant on May fourth, only to have to shut it down again a week ago. Welcome, sir. Good to have you with us. And we're sorry you've been going through such a uh, such an up and down, Rick. Um, why did you shut down a second time? Uh, we were informed that we had some customers who had tested positive for the coronavirus, and uh, we were already working on a plan to bring our level of occupancy down to try and make it a bit safer. And then uh, this all happened last Friday evening, and within the space of about four hours, we heard of a few more um, infections, people who had been into the restaurant in the last week, and also we had a couple of our staff started feeling like they may have had symptoms. So um, my general manager called me. I was over at the beach and she uh, said, I think we need to shut down. And I agreed with her and we shut down immediately, closed the doors and told everybody we'd open in a couple of weeks when we could be safe to bring them back in again. Can you survive may- a second shutdown? Uh, it depends on how long it takes, Tyler. We have some PPP funding, which I don't know how long that's going to last. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't take forever, yeah, we could be okay. We've had a lot of support from the community. We've had um, people just randomly send me checks in the mail, which is, you know, really, really gratifying. We've had customers who set up GoFundMe accounts so that my staff can uh, keep getting paid. And we've had just a tremendous Florida, amount of support. As I'm sure you know, Florida has had a record high of new cases just today and for multiple days this week. Central Florida, where you are, is a notable uh, a sort of hotspot for the illness. To what do you attribute this? Have, have people just not been practicing social distancing, not wearing masks uh, in public? Why do you think it came on with such force here in Florida? Well, I think that uh, everybody was cooped up for seven weeks initially, and then uh, we went to 25% of occupancy for uh, from May 4th to May 28th. But when we opened up at 50% of occupancy, I think the saturation, particularly for my business, was too much. Even though we have a large room, it uh, tends to be that people congregate and choke points, um, maybe at the bar and things like that. So the fact that people weren't doing social distancing and also the fact that people um, sort of have politicized the fact that wearing a mask is a bad thing has really 
has really gotten to be the problem, in my opinion. I wear a mask uh, pretty much everywhere, and I see every you know a lot of people doing it, but I also see a lot of people just not adhering to that. Rick, thank you very much. Rick Comer of the uh, Kiwis Pub and Grill near Orlando, where in a month's time the NBA is supposed to resume playing its season. Rick, good luck, uh, and uh, keep fighting the good fight. We appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Well, the, the pandemic has highlighted a disparity in health care in the United States. And we're talking more and more about it now with two doctors on the front lines of the pandemic and the inequality of American health care. Bertha Coombs is here to lead the conversation. Bertha. Thanks very much, Tyler. You know, some African-American doctors writing in the New England Journal of Medicine this week framed the twin crises of the COVID pandemic and the social unrest in the wake of uh, George Floyd's killing at the hands of police in the terms of stolen breaths. They argue that the epidemic of police violence because of implicit bias has become a public health threat for people of color. And of course, the impact of the COVID-19 crisis disproportionately affecting people of color underscores the fact that in healthcare, this has also become a problem in terms of poor health outcomes. Joining me now are Dr. Patrice Harris, who is the immediate past president of the American Medical Association, and Dr. Oliver Brooks, who heads the National Medical Association, which is the nation's largest organization of black doctors. I want to start with you, with Dr. Harris. You and your recently completed tenure had really focused on the issue issue of health equity. You helped the AMA launch a center for health equity to focus on these issues. It must feel just incredible to see this become something that is now very much on the front burner. Well, I am so glad that uh, we are having more intense, more focused conversation around health inequities. Of course, pre-COVID-19, these issues existed, but COVID-19 has brought into stark relief issues around health inequities, racism, and of course, these recent uh, episodes of police violence, uh, again, has demonstrated a disproportionate impact on blacks and brown people in our community. And all of these are a triple threat Uh, to the health of the public, to public health, COVID-19, racism, and police uh, brutality. So I am glad uh, that we are having the conversations, but what is more important uh, will be the action. And as you said, the AMA established our Center for Health Equity a couple of years ago, and we have hired our first chief health equity officer. We have a new partnership with Essence and the NMA. Glad to to, uh, uh, be on with Dr. Brooks. And so we are identifying those issues. And it's important that individuals and organizations look at structural um, discrimination, structural racism, as well as individual implicit and unconscious biases. It really is going to take an all-in effort uh, to address these issues and not just the health community, by the way. Let's bring in Dr. Brooks. Uh, You testified this week uh, in the House Energy and Commerce Committee about some of the ways to address this. And one of the main issues you talked about is implicit bias training, anti-bias training for clinicians and other healthcare workers. Uh, Why is this so important? 
It's important because implicit bias is subconscious. So a lot of times people don't even know that they're doing it. So to reverse the effects of implicit bias, which we see both very directly in police brutality, but also in healthcare, is to have the implicit bias trained. There was a study done in 2017 by just using mindfulness. Uh, trainees, those that were in the training, focused more on the moment and what was going on. It did not trigger their internal biases. There was another study done in 2017 that showed the same thing. So if we are going to achieve equity as it relates to race and racism, then we clearly need to have implicit bias training. Some, there, there's a tremendous research, some on, for example, the fact that non-black doctors tend to underestimate pain in African-Americans because they sort of have this unconscious belief that African-Americans are more tolerant of pain. One of the other things you talk about is more training to bring more black doctors online. Uh, one of the issues that seems to be an impediment for many is the fact that the training is so expensive. A lot of people have to go into so much debt. So, interesting. First of all, part of the HEROES bill that passed the House in, on May 15th has student loan forgiveness. But the, we do need more black doctors. There was also a study in Oakland that showed that when African-American men had treatment by African-American doctors, their outcomes were 18 percent better. So you see worse outcomes as it relates to times when white doctors treat black patients. And you also see better outcomes when you have black doctors treat black patients. And of interest with the implicit bias, there was a study that showed that black doctors tend to have inherently less implicit bias as it relates to race. Dr. Harris, when we talk about steps that need to be taken, obviously the health community needs to do it, but do we also need to have political backing for these kinds of measures? Dr. Brooks asked Congress to fund more uh, diversity in terms of uh, research uh, for uh, medications, for example. Absolutely. We uh, need to tackle this issue on so many fronts. We do uh, need more research. We need more uh, people of color to um, enter into clinical trials. Now, uh, we know that we have to uh, earn the trust of many in the black and brown community because of the past legacy, but we need that as well. We do need to enhance our pipeline. Uh, student debt is a huge issue, as you heard from Dr. Brooks, but we need to start even earlier. And I know there are many uh, pipeline programs. I know the Morehouse School of Medicine here in Atlanta is really involved and engaged many. We are at the AMA, NMA. We are all engaged in looking at uh, pipeline uh, programs. Training is so very important, as Dr. Brooks said, but we also need policies and procedures. Everyone, institutions need to look 
match their own policies and procedures. They need to look at their boardrooms. They need to look at their leadership to make sure uh, that they have black and brown uh, people who are in powerful positions, in decision-making uh, positions. And we also need to change the culture. Now, that uh, may take a while, but it's culture, it's training, and it is policies and procedures. We need work in all three areas. And Dr. Brooks, I'll give you the last word in the time we have left. Do you feel hopeful? I've seen doctors out joining with protesters, demanding for greater uh, social equity. Do you feel as though something is in the air and is really going to change? Yes, there is something in the air, and things are already changing. Here in Los Angeles, there is discussion at the city council about redirecting some of the police funding to social services. Uh, also, I have friends that are in the corporate America, and the conversations they are having with their white counterparts is different. It's palpably different. This is, we, this is a pregnant moment. And you do note also that the police brutality went worldwide. So it was happening in the U.K. and other countries. So something has happened. There has been a nexus. I look at the social underlying pandemic of police brutality, and you have layered upon that an acute biologic pandemic of COVID-19. And I believe it's just the combination of the two that has just brought people to a particular place. There's a clear spotlight now on racial and ethnic inequities, and we must act now. Because after all is said and done, more is said than done. So we must do something now. Dr. Brooks, Dr. Harris, thank you both so much for joining us this evening. And let's hope that we do see more action than talking this time around. Tyler, back over to you. Bertha, thank you very much as well. Well, news at this hour that the Treasury Department and Small Business Administration have had an about face and will now disclose the names of businesses taking PPP loans in excess of $150,000. Let's go to Kayla Tausche now for the details. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Tyler. We're just seeing a release that the federal agencies administering the so-called Paycheck Protection Program are now going to be releasing the information about the companies receiving loans above $150,000, which they say are three-quarters of the loans dispersed so far uh, in this 10-week program so far. The data that will be released in this trove are the names and addresses of these companies, the type of business that they are, the number of jobs that the business supports and that the loan supported, and they will specifically uh, show the range of the size of the loan, not the exact amount, but it will be in a range. In tonight's statement, the Treasury Secretary praised bipartisan agreement on this disclosure after just last week telling Congress that the data about who's getting these loans is confidential. At $670 billion, this small business loan program itself is bigger than the financial rescue of the U.S. banks back in the last crisis. And because of that, watchdog groups and lawmakers have been calling for the release of this information in the name of transparency. Certainly, this is a win for transparency this evening when CNBC reached out to the small business administration about when exactly we would be getting this information, we were told, stay tuned. Tyler. All right, Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche reporting. And here's what's next on tonight's CNBC special report.
when rules run out. Enacted to stave off evictions during the pandemic. We're starting to find out. That's next. Plus, a unique internship program giving a lot of people opportunities many never dreamed of. And it was important for those of us that are able to work for us to help others that can't right now. Stepping up to help those in need. Before the break, our country on Friday night, June 19th. horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager The virus causing havoc in the sports world tonight. The Philadelphia Phillies today had to shut down their training camp because several players on the team were taken ill. Several players as well as several of team officials. Other teams have also shut down training facilities due to the virus, including the Tampa Bay Lightning. They have shut down because several of their players were taken ill. And... Let's see what else there is there for the pandemic. Uh, rules have gone. There are some more headlines on this uh, virus on day 173 to tell you about. Number one is that Apple will close some so- stores because of the virus. It temporarily closing stores in four states, Florida, North and South Carolina and Arizona because of a rise in COVID cases. And Chicago's mayor says indoor drinking and dining will resume at the city at 25 percent capacity a week from tonight. That's June 26th. And Ford and Chrysler Fiat expected to be back to pre-pandemic production schedules at their U.S. plants on Monday. All right, the artist Aaron Hooley is stepping up in his Seattle community. Since the crisis began, the sculptor has had a unique way of helping others do the right thing. I was seeing the long lines of people in their cars waiting for access to food from food banks. And so I felt like it was important for those of us that are able to work for us to help others that can't right now. I'm making sculptures, putting them out on my sidewalk and asking people to donate to uh, local and national food banks. So basically they can just pick up the artwork that's out, donate directly to the food bank organizations take the artwork home, put it in their homes or gardens. I've got a backlog of orders and people are asking for more. A gentleman sent me a text message and said that he donated $5,000 to Northwest Harvest. And at that point, I've only collected about 5,000 in total. So that morning basically doubled the amount of money that we contributed. And I definitely found that inspiring to continue making sculptures. We've raised about $24,000, collectively provided about 100,000 meals to families in need. Makes me feel fantastic that people are able to come together and help the people that are struggling during this epidemic. 
Aaron tells CNBC that over the past two months, he's made about 75 sculptures and has no intention of slowing down one bit. Well, during this uh, pandemic crisis, rules went into place forcing delays in the eviction process across the country. But those restrictions are ending now in many places, including in Wisconsin. Rafael Ramos is the executive director of the Eviction Defense Project at Legal Action Wisconsin, and he's with us live tonight. Tell us what's going on in um, in the state of Wisconsin, particularly in the Milwaukee area. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. You know, we've basically seen exactly what we've expected since the end of the eviction moratorium, and that's that a lot of landlords have rushed to court to file the eviction actions that they were waiting on. Uh, basically, since the start of June, we've seen an increase uh, of eviction filings of about 21% when compared to last year. Uh, so we're starting to see indications of a wave of evictions that we were afraid of to begin with. Um, and our hope now is that it actually is just that, and it is a wave um, that the eviction crisis will recede, because the problem with evictions is that it tends to beget itself. It's a self-perpetuating problem that makes it harder and harder for people to escape, uh, essentially, a, the cycle of poverty. Perhaps this is an unknowable uh, uh, factor here, but how many of the evictions that have now come back into play after being put on suspension or under moratorium, how many of those would have taken place even if the coronavirus, the COVID, had not taken place? Do you have an idea? Well, I, think it, I think it's a really interesting question. You know, uh, again, the increase we've seen is about 21%. So let's assume that the other 100% would have been filed regardless. Um, you know, the, the main problem with eviction, the root of eviction is poverty, and that existed pre-COVID-19. The problem that we run into now with COVID-19 is that it's essentially shifted the line. You know, people who lived on the razor's edge of poverty before um, or were relatively safe before now because of the economic stress caused by COVID-19 find themselves on the wrong side of that blade increasing the number of people who are potentially being subject to eviction now. So we, we don't have specific numbers yet, but I think we're, we're starting to see an indication that more people are being evicted. Um, and that's also keeping in mind the fact that there's federal protections that are still in place. So there are whole groups of properties that right now evictions can't be filed against them. But in about a month, at the end of July, there's a whole swath of other evictions that are coming to add on to what we've already seen. A lot of the federal uh, Section 8 properties are covered, as I understand it, by some of the moratoriums or the protections. And are there loan programs that can help tenants bridge the gap uh, between, between getting a job back and, and losing their incomes? Are there such programs? That's a great question. You know, one of the biggest source, uh, biggest resource that's available to tenants now is CARES Act funding. In Milwaukee County, for example, uh, the county has used uh, the Wisconsin Rental, Wisconsin Rental Assistance Program uh, to make up to $3,000 available to tenants to pay arrears that they've accrued thanks to uh, the coronavirus. So there is money that's become available, um, and I encourage people to look at their local jurisdictions, the local service providers, uh, because that is the one upshot to the coronavirus is that there are, are a lot of people and resources coming together for folks out there. Rafael Ramos, thank you for your time tonight and uh, illuminating us on that particular angle of the coronavirus thank you, crisis. Thank you again. You bet.
Well, many successful careers begin with an internship, but to some young men and women, they're not so easy to find, certainly not this year. Tonight, Diana Olick reports on an organization that is taking the lead in evening the playing field in the real estate business and helping improve financial literacy along the way. Project Destined launched four years ago as a real estate learning platform. How is it going to drive more revenue and more value per square foot? It teaches inner city kids finance by helping them source actual investments. How can I maximize my profit in this investment opportunity? They can then win a stake in those deals through live scholarship competitions. Its founder, former Carlisle Group investment executive Cedric Bobo, teaches real estate but preaches community ownership. When COVID struck and New York City canceled 75,000 paid summer internships, he set out to save at least some of them. We went straight to the real estate folks. We went straight to CEOs. That's really important because if you want to have action, you've got to have the leaders create action and then measure it. Bobo recruited some of the biggest in the business. Brookfield, Tishman Spire, Real Estate Bureau of New York, and Walker and Dunlop to fund the five- and six-week internships. Then, when the protests erupted, even more companies stepped up. The protests are critical because they bring awareness. We've got to sustain that awareness. But the next piece is how do you translate that into action? So what we've been doing is working with corporates to create true training opportunities where they can hire those folks. He also brought in Vincent Harris, co-founder of a small black-owned prop tech firm, which helps small real estate investors source deals. A lot of the lack of access that you see people demanding in the streets right now comes from the fact that folks who have power, the power to hire, etc., don't interface with black and brown communities. They don't have uh, a, a means of entry. And so Project Destined is really cementing a pipeline of talent into these organizations. More than 200 internships are already funded and underway. These kids are working with real executives from companies, researching deals, learning marketing strategies, and getting in front of the people who could potentially hire them in the future. Diana Olick, CNBC, Washington. And there is a lot more ahead tonight. Straight ahead, three business owners finding their paths forward and re-emerging from the pandemic. Tonight, their struggles, triumphs, scars, and new fears as many businesses are forced to close for a second time. A CNBC special report, The Path Forward, Your Business, is coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. 
When the pandemic hit, the demand for soybeans spiked, but the containers used to ship those soybeans became a very, very scarce commodity. Robert Sinner owns a soybean farm in North Dakota, and he describes the challenges faced by many farmers in his own words. And we can't get our customers food. Those are frustrations that you lose sleep over. When imports come into this country, they go to the large metropolitan areas. They don't go to North Dakota. In contrast, agricultural products come out of the rural parts of the United States. So therein lies a logistical issue. Here comes the pandemic. The shelves started to empty. So a little bit of panic buying. Customers are asking us to ship more, ship faster. We still have challenges in order to get a product from point A to point B. So the pandemic hits China. Manufacturing businesses shut down. Fewer and fewer imports coming into this country. Less and less containers coming in which means now less and less containers available for export. China came back to work and now it's a U.S. demand issue. And so we're still fighting the challenges of not enough equipment so that we can get products shipped out on a timely basis. Rural America is, is struggling to get the necessary equipment and infrastructure to get product to customers on a timely basis. That was Robert Sinner in his own words. Well, the $60 billion wedding business has been decimated in recent months, with couples either postponing or canceling their nuptials. Wedding photographer Dana Frost joins us tonight from Denver. Dana, welcome. Good to have you with us. <coughs> Great. Thank you so much. Dana, welcome. Do you hear me? Good. Oh, fantastic. Good. Um, how much yes, is business off you. this year for you? Yeah. How much is business off this year? Um. Yeah, it's, I'm down about 40%. I can't Michelle, hear jump in. You can't hear anything. Well, then I'll continue until we, get the, uh, until we get your uh, position uh, back up. Uh, so, Dana, you're down about 40%. Are there ways that you have compensated for this? In other words, taking on other kinds of assignments that may that may not be quite as sensitive to the pandemic where people don't want to gather in large groups? Yes, so we have refocused to more intimate weddings and elopements. So a lot of my couples have downsized their weddings and forego their large venue. And so also out in, in Denver, I guess uh, I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe that there are a lot of outdoor services that might come back a little quicker than, than large indoor gatherings. Am I, am I all wet about that or am I, am I right? Um, absolutely. Luckily here in Colorado, we do have these larger outdoor mountaintop venues, but the thing is, is the reception is indoors. And so they don't want those gatherings during dinner during that time. So how else have you compensated for the loss in business? I've started taking on elopements versus larger weddings, and I've refocused my marketing and my ads and so forth. Yeah, and I would think also maybe you can fill up your dance card a little bit with, uh, you know, photographs of children or families or uh, grandparents and so forth, because pa grandparents want to stay in touch with their families and, and maybe can't uh, have person-to-person -person meetings with their, with their young grandkids. Is that part of the business that you're, that you're trying to reach out a little more to? 
Exactly. So now, yeah, I'm doing a lot more families. I'm doing a lot more children, maternity. Um, so anything I can to stay that social distance, I'm doing. So how much have you been able to recoup uh, by taking these various steps that you had to learn on the fly uh, from uh, the wedding business, which you said was down something like 40 percent or so? Yeah, 40, 50 percent. Uh, it's not so much for me because that's not where my experience in my marketing was geared towards. So I had to do mm-hmm. I had to flip things around to start getting that type of business. So that part of the aspect with families and children, not so much, but the elopements and the intimate weddings have definitely taken off because people are now not booking larger weddings for this year or even next year. They're booking the smaller weddings, the smaller elopements in these Airbnbs. Well, I'll tell you, Dana, some of these shots are just absolutely beautiful. Continued good luck to you. They're really gorgeous. Keep up the good work. Dana Frost, we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much. And here's what's next tonight. Here's what's next. Meeting the Bar. How this ballet school is making new plans to get by in a new environment. This CNBC special report, The Path Forward, Your Business, returns in one minute. School of Cleveland Ballet has been on its toes since the pandemic hit, coming up with new ways to train students and professional dancers. The founder and artistic director of the ballet is Gladisa Guadalupe, and she joins us tonight from Cleveland. Gladisa, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. There's a little bit of a delay here, and we'll just soldier on here. How have you had to improvise to, to, to serve your classes? Well, the moment that we closed at the beginning of March, we decided to go via Zoom to all the classes. Um, and we stayed Zooming for a long time. The school, all the classes, you know, we had to scale down. We could not do all the 42 classes a week that we do, so we had to scale down. And uh, we continued via Instagram and via Zoom. Um, when we were allowed to come back, then we decided to do a hybrid program in which we had certain dancers come into the studio and also via Zoom. And that's where we are presently right now. I can imagine that Zoom would be would be helpful, uh, but it's it doesn't take the place of a real class because I can imagine that a ballet instructor is positioning physically a, a dancer's body so that they assume the right position and maybe the surfaces are different where they are. It must not be it's good, but it's not at the same as being in a class with an instructor who can really position you, right? That is correct. As you know, this is an art form. You touch. You have to mold the bodies of the dancers, of the artists. Uh, the moment that we started Zooming, I realized at that moment that we were going to have a hard time getting back. They are standing on different floors, kitchen floors, tile floors, carpet, and um, it's a different way of working. You need dancers need the the floor in order to move. And uh, sure enough, the moment that we started bringing the students back into the studio, I realized that our work had to not to be reinvented, but ways of doing it differently. How to 
express uh, the corrections to them, how to touch them. We, if for coaches, we're allowed to touch them, but you have to still respect, you know, if they're wearing their mask, if they don't want to be touched, you have to respect that. So we had had to reinvent the wheel to a certain degree. Yes. I have a lot of sympathy for these kids because, you know, they've been learning and then probably taken a step back when they weren't able to practice the same way. And I think your story applies to many others. So tell me about, you know, you probably went to free Zoom classes. Now you're going to a hybrid model that's in studio and digital as well. Are people paying for the digital classes? And would you recommend that, you know, kind of all of these businesses in fitness look to charge for their digital classes or keep them more as a free thing? You know, I have to tell you, um, we are not charging for our Zoom classes. We are not charging for the Instagrams. You know, we people join. I am doing we're doing this five times a week and it's open to the public. You know, the art, the arts and cultures have been impacted greatly during this pandemic. Um, nobody's talking about that. You know, um, people go to the theater to see beauty. People, artists do work 24-7. They shape. It's a lifestyle. So. I, in my opinion, I know that this is very difficult times in terms of economic reliefs and stuff like that, but we need to continue moving. We need to give these classes free to the children. Uh, We had five outreach programs that all of a sudden stopped. We used to bus them here every single day. And... We don't see those children anymore. You know, we don't. We have dancers that were auditioning for professional careers in different companies, even in our own company, Cleveland Ballet, and the wings have been clipped. So I know this is very difficult economically. We have lost a lot of money. We have received government help. It's not enough. But at the same time, in order for us to go back to some kind of normalcy, I I would like to continue giving these classes for free. It's very difficult because we have to pay our our employees, you know, and we have to pay the rent and we have to pay the electricity. But the art needs to live. They need to continue living. Look at the movement of the dancers. Beautiful. Yeah, no, and thank you. You've done so much community work and you've continued to do it uh, throughout this period of time. Let me just... Let me just ask a a final quick question. Under normal circumstances, how much of your revenue is from tuition and how much comes from other sources, whether it's foundations or government or or philanthropy or or does none of it come from that? No, we do have we have tuition income. We have um, also uh, grants, foundations, donations. We do Mm -hmm. um, uh, fundraisers. We do performances. So all of that was stopped. Uh, we were very lucky. A lot of a lot of the t- the uh, dancers, students register here. The parents continue giving the the full tuition. Others could not afford it. We lost the income of the outreach programs. The foundations were pulled back. So, I will say, you know, we lost about between thirty to thirty five percent of the income for our school. Very interesting. Thank you, Iglesia. Thank you very much. Uh, We appreciate your time tonight and uh, all the work you've done for children and dancers. Michelle, we thank you as well. Michelle Romanow of ClearBank. Uh, She's the co-founder there. And we thank uh, our other business owners who are with us tonight. And of course, we thank you for joining us tonight. And for all of us at CNBC, I am Tyler Matheson. We appreciate your time tonight. We'll see you next week. Undercover Boss is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 